Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, everybody. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. How's everybody doing? Oh yeah, my God, we got a hundred thousand live listeners, live viewers, right at the moment. Oh my yes. God, look at that! Make All sure you smash up that like button. And it's share. a little lower than we expected, but it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> well, there's the four of us watching ourselves, so we have those four right. people. That's probably well, the. Four I'm going to open up the champagne. There you go. If anybody First. else wants to join me? If I, you know, I've I've good. already opened mine and poured it. Cheers, oh guys! Oh, get it. Happy one year. Went by pretty year. fast. What a great idea it did. we all had to just yeah. start riffing remotely due to COVID. Amazing what It was happened. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting as I went down this um, RAM memory lane, right? You can't really say it's memory lane because it's one year. So it's short-term memory lane. Uh, looking at the episodes, I, I saw the, the Pandemic Portfolio podcast episode that we did, which was technically not a riffs but was exactly this setting, the four of us sort of discussing the different macro narratives that were emerging through uh, the heightened uncertainty that we went through uh, as the pandemic broke out in March. And I think that episode went live in April, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe it was May. But uh, so I, I saw that as sort of the jumping point to what later became Riffs. And it was yeah, interesting so what- to go... What Richard yeah. is alluding to here is the fact that uh, he took on the task of um, <laughs> t- trying to uh, put put the Venn diagram together uh, for all the different episodes that we've done over the last year and, and has done a really good job of uh, connecting the dots. So we're going to try and, and, and cover some of the major themes and, and put them all together. But a big 
thank you to Richard for his efforts this week. And, and uh, to whatever extent this is a success or not, it's a success due to his efforts. It's a failure due to, due to, uh, some of us are going to be pushing in one direction. Others are have explicitly told us they're going to be pushing in the other direction as per the usual. So that's what makes riffs unique. The perfect balance between order and chaos. All right. Before we get down to it all, let's do a big cheers. Thank you, gentlemen. Always appreciate you. Appreciate our honest conversations. Absolutely. Life would be incredibly boring without your company. And cheers to all of you who are listening and uh, appreciate the audience. You're able to, Grab a drink and join us today. This is going to be even less formal than our usual um, conversations, trader trader chats. <laughs> so um, we welcome you guys chiming in um, as you have all throughout the year. And we've noticed that the engagement has continued to sort of creep higher uh, episode to episode and week to week. And for that, we really thank you for your suggestions and questions to keep the, the conversation going. Um, they are very much appreciated. Yeah, great words. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm, right. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell people how I really feel today since we don't have any right any people Mike, on. Do you I feel do you feel the need back like you usually do? Yeah, I, I do back. hold back on this. I've been criticized for that numerous times. Yeah, actually, true. Should <laughs> we hit them with the uh, disclaimers or, or did this? Uh, yeah, sure, time? sure. So so yeah, a, a, a few things. If you're liking what you hear, obviously write a review, share, smash that like button, all that good stuff. Comment, and we would like to make this episode particularly interactive so if you've got thoughts as we discuss very uh controversial opinions on certain things in the asset management business and trend following and systematic versus discretionary and global macro please chime in so we can uh continue and further the further and furtherance of the discussion of any questions you have none of this is all at all advice this is going to be purely entertainment so absolutely well, so Richard, entertainment. Maybe, it, um, maybe it makes sense for you to um just paint up with some broad strokes some general observations of of major themes and learnings and guests and stuff that we've um that we've experienced over the last 12 months yeah for sure so uh i went down the uh episode list roughly about 50 episodes just shy of 50 and uh, I try to, to break it down into some of the uh, more common themes that we had. And uh, it was very evident from the jump that almost half of them had something to do with macro. And that the reason for that is many fold. And one of the obvious ones is that macro is sort of this elemental soup where everything sort of happens. It's the backdrop. Uh, and when you're talking about uh, portfolio construction and sort of asset allocation, it's always a trade-off, right? You're holding equities in lieu of bonds or mm-hmm. commodities, and then you go down into the strategy. So it's just this this all-encompassing theme. It's also to do with the fact that we are uh, global macro junkies, if you will, right? Even though we do things from a systematic lens, but we're all very much uh, interested in the theme and have been for many years. And it ends up being the case that we invite a lot of the global macro folks. So having uh, people like last episode was Juliet the Clerk, which was an awesome conversation. And we can get into a little bit of that. But we've had guys like Mike Green and uh, Bill Fleckenstein and we Julian Brigden, for instance, uh, going down the list. I think, Richard, when you say, you know, when you when we talk about global macro, I think that stems from the fact 
that we are global macro investors, but there's a reason for that. There's a reason why we start with the opportunity to include every asset class possible on the planet and then think about how those asset classes can uniquely contribute to a portfolio. And then step one in that context is to think about what the non-bet portfolio is, that if, if I could admit to myself that I didn't know anything about the future, which is tremendously difficult to do. The reason so I difficult. phrase a question like that is because I want someone to postulate if you could admit to yourself when it comes to your portfolio that you don't have any predictions or you don't know the future, how would you think about positioning your portfolio? And obviously for us, that, that comes down to many risk parity concepts and, and, and rebalancing and, and the, the rebalancing bonus that comes from having that macro consistent portfolio and, and the way to look at the world where I don't know what's going to happen. So rates could go from 1% to negative 1%. That's possible. It's happened in other jurisdictions. And so when you start there, I mean, it makes sense that we would have some global macro people on people love pro prognostications it's interesting to think about the consequences of those prognostications in a portfolio so i'm not surprised that that we like that i'm not surprised that some of the viewership likes that but that stems from that initial concept of being global and then harnessing some of the things about just being humble about how we might think about the future and then next thinking about that go ahead rod well, that, that's how, kind of how the journey started. A few episodes in, you know, we're in the middle of this market crash. And we one of my favorite episodes was the uh, the do no harm. No, what was it? What did we call it? The, um, the, the pandemic portfolio, right? Where each one of us took a side as to what we think is going to happen, what the narrative is. And if that narrative is true, then what would happen to the markets? And, you know, I think, you know, Mikey went with the bullish. Some, I don't know, one of you guys went with the bearish. Whatever narrative, have you heard that episode? Because if you haven't, it's hilarious. We get the narrative completely wrong. Like none of us said that uh, the only bullish case was somebody discovers that the virus is, you know, benign tomorrow and then the market goes up, right? Like we just got the narrative completely wrong. Of and, course. And, and the markets moved just be recovery up. But it didn't matter from the perspective of, we have no clue. We were clearly wrong in our narrative. The markets moved a certain way and risk parity portfolios that have this approach of not trying to predict actually fared fairly well for if you're updating your estimates fast enough. Uh, you did okay in March and you ended up positive for the year. It was kind of a non-event if you look at the non-lever oh, version. And you parity, did right? so well based on just having commodity exposure as a part of your overall mm -hmm. structure. Mm -hmm. Right. We yeah. didn't say, I don't know what's going to happen in March in oil at minus thirty seven dollars a barrel. I don't think there was many bullish people on commodities at that point. And uh, the reason we have had, I think, some very good performance is because those uh, those asset classes were there. They were there all the time. And, and so it's not about predicting, it's about understanding how it fits into the portfolio and having some systems that maybe do some predicting for you and attenuate those positions and expand those positions when opportune. But hey, that resource market uh, dominance kicked off probably in September, uh, if not earlier, then post the election, you saw it accelerate. Copper stocks are up 300% and the NASDAQ's up 8 and the narrative, the Overton window on that zeitgeist is starting to shift there. We're seeing it now. 
Uh, but those positions were in the risk parity portfolio, and those positions have expanded in positions where we take thoughtful, systematic, uh, quantitative bets in portfolios. Yeah, and the emotions it wasn't a question were so of overweight, strong. right? Right. No, the, the the emotions were so strong back then. Even when in our internal conversations, it was, it, it, we, everybody was just so negative during that period. And I remember just one of our uh, key guests, Mike Green, who was on a couple times. I think we decided to bring him on because of what he was saying at the bottom. And everybody was like, this is going to get worse. You know, here are the job numbers. This is what's going to happen. The cascading effect, the knock-on effects of people not being able to work. And then Mike Green is out there as a lone wolf saying, I actually think this, that we're going to have a massive bull run by the end of the year. First of all, because the sentiment's so bad. And secondly, because of this structural uh, issue with indexation where the buying pressure just doesn't stop. And I remember thinking, like, I, that feels so wrong. We got to have this. Guy it's probably going to happen. It, it feels so wrong that it's probably going right? to happen. Right? Um, but it's just the reason I think we, as everybody who's listened to our podcast knows, we gravitate towards systematic is because it's really tough for us to to get away from the emotional side of things. So you have your your you we started this by being like we don't know, and even if we think we did know, we'd rather codify and have systematic rules around it. Uh, but you know, what do you, we did have a big macro bent this whole year. What do you think that's about? And they were pretty popular too. Just can oh, we I ever think beat it's, macro? There's a couple of things, right? One is that obviously storytelling fires all of the emotional triggers in, in the brain. Like we're wired to respond emotionally to stories. We filter those stories through the prism of our own biases and realities and experiences at the time. And so there's something for everybody in macro, right? You can find anything that to confirm um, one or more of your biases and that feels good and, and it's storytelling. And so that's but the other more concrete reason, I think, is that um, what happens in the multi-asset space is, is responsible for over half of what happens to the entire portfolio, right? So, you know, so much attention is focused on individual stocks, especially over the last decade, uh, you know, stock-based stories have completely dominated the conversation, mostly because a handful of U.S. equities were responsible for the entire gain in, or, you know, the vast majority of gains in total global market caps across every asset class over the last 10 years, right? And only recently has macro taken on a bit of life again. Um, But but historically, what happens in the multi-asset arena is responsible for well over half of what happens to your total portfolio growth over time, right? So you kind of can't avoid it. And, um, it. and it matters in a very concrete way for everybody. What happens to macro? What are the relative opportunities in stocks versus bonds versus commodities within different commodities? How do you structure a portfolio to maximize exposure to all of the different opportunities. So, you know, I think there's some emotional reasons and there's some very concrete financial reasons why, why pe- people are, are fixated on, um, on macro. On the, on the concrete side of things, I would take it one step further. And I think that since the great financial crisis, because of the role that central banks have played globally and the tectonic shifts across the capital market space that have happened because of quantitative easing and all the and taking rates all the way to zero and in negative territory for some countries and all the dislocations of capital that have happened because of these moves. And then more recently, since COVID, the fiscal 
uh, uh, arrow, response. yeah, joining into the fore and becoming this this sort of driver of policy. It, there's there's no escaping the fact that for the last call it 13 years, we have had massive governmental uh, intervention in markets, and that has to get this sort of big macro shift. Even though perhaps some of the more popular uh, macro strategies might not have been the, the strategies that have thrived the most because unless you were overweight, the uh, uh, mega cap tech stocks, you underperformed this this uh, NASDAQ benchmark. Uh, but in, in, in reality, it is this this move across the, the, the global landscape coming from central banks and then more recently uh, the government purses that have driven a lot of the dislocation that I think we've we've seen. And, and, and to your point earlier about the uh, the narrative coming from specific equities, I think in the last year and a bit with the gamification and memification of some of the stocks and, and, and the Tesla and the GameStop debacle, that trend has only accelerated. It's become this exponential sort of gamification that has driven a lot of the narrative that has become really salient. And I think some of the guests that we've had that uh, we call uh, internally guardians of the narrative are some of the people that have been able to distill this narrative and bring it uh, to, to this very cogent and clear framework for us for us all to understand. Uh, uh, and, and I'm talking about guys like Mike Green, uh, Lynn Alden, I think, uh, uh, is, is pretty mm-hmm. prominent. Uh, Bill Fleckenstein, who I was, was going to say Fleck, right? When we had Fleck on, it just happened to be the week after uh, the, GameStop. the GameStop where, where right. you know, you, you've got uh, all kinds of funny stuff going on. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, and his uh, uh, Endgame series that he's been uh, co-hosting with Grant Williams has kind of delved into some of these very same topics. And, and, and so these are some of the guys, Ben Hunt, I would we also had Ben uh, Hunt. We had Ben Hunt a week into when COVID, COVID started to be, a and thing. he was deep into he was, the COVID. He was narrative. in Toronto. He was in Toronto, and he was telling us how crazy it was that they let him in to to the airport without testing him, and like what he was seeing and what's going to happen, and how no, that he was, was preparing. Uh, so Ben was no, on our ben. podcast. That was in our podcast before to Riffs. Toronto. Before yeah, Riffs, like, yeah, that was before Riffs. Yeah, and then he came on Riffs. Mm-hmm. While we were all in lockdown, and he was deep right. into it because he he had been following with this very closely, uh, and so these are some of the guys that we we call the guardians of the narrative who have come on and sort of distilled this in a very very uh, uh, clear way for all of us, and so that right. I think is is are, are some of the other reasons why the the global macro conversation has featured so prominently in our uh, in our episodes. And I, I think it's it's actually. Uh, probably important or, or interesting to delve into what the guardians of the narrative means, right? It's that that transition of belief, that Overton window, right? How it shifts from absolutely not, couldn't happen to, of course, that's the way everybody does it. And and how we've, we've observed that happening over the last year in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, on so many dimensions, do you see the narrative changing, the narrative around COVID, the narrative around the shift to commodities? Would you have thought the drive to ESG would, in fact, drive money to natural resource companies? <laughs> like we, we have a massive drive to ESG and copper mining stocks are through the roof. And yeah. base metal stocks due to the fact that they're connected to the potential batteries, which are you know still being charged in a way in which we however we generate electrons, that's how 
those those cars are being charged. But it, it's just interesting that the this Overton window is in constant flux, and the guardians of the old narrative give it up slowly. And that new narrative is fought all the way up until, of course, it's commonplace. And so it's just such a it's such a, a thoughtful way. And, and the question there, I guess, is how many derivatives do you do, go down in order to get to what you think is the right answer where you're you're at the nexus of the, the change in thought process about the pricing of said assets, let's say, in a portfolio vis-a-vis where the adoption is in the narrative? Well, it's like well, Jason, our, our partner, Jason Russell, who... Um, was mentored by Ed Sakota, and he, he recalls um, how Ed Sakota described trend following as sort of the, the evolution of why, right? And um, mm. I think this has been a really great example over the past 12 months of how the narratives lagged behind price action, right? We saw prices, obviously, you know, Mike, you described how um, obviously it was a massive rally in commodities off the lows just a major snapback in, in all asset prices, major contraction in risk premia. And all of that happened way before the narrative caught up, right? And so we've really only seen inflation as a meme, as a, as a like Google search theme, for example, really accelerate over the last three, four weeks. Meanwhile, the major moves in most of the inflation-linked trades happened over the fall of last year, right? And have sort of been bouncing around a, a, a peak for the last six or eight weeks. So, you know, this is what's so great. And we always focus on and, and, and have chatted about this even earlier, this discussion, but the focus on um, thinking systematically, because by the time you catch up or the narrative catches up with price, um, the bulk of the move is over, right? Oftentimes, yeah. or at least the bulk of this move Um there may be other moves going forward, but but this moves over by the time that the narrative catches up. And I remember Don Cox um, back when I I sort of followed the macro path more religiously in in the knots. Um, used to talk about a story moving from page sixteen to page three to page one, and you really wanted to, if you were gonna follow macro, you wanted to be focused on the page sixteen story that was moving to page three. And by the time it hit page one, you wanted to be lightning positions, right? So um, when those that like it most hate it least or something like that. Those who know it best love it least. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's yeah. when you, that's when you well, want to get in. One, yeah. one of the key ones that was behind the narrative was crypto, right? Like crypto, we, the theme that we saw was the disenfranchisement of of individuals right of the vast majority of the population the humongous wealth gap like we were and particularly millennials as a generation i think plays by the way speaking of millennials my wife told me yesterday because i was born in 1980 i was known as a geriatric millennial could i get a worse moniker than that by the way is anybody oh my god it's it's literally the worst but no you win the millennials and me the geriatric millennials (laughs) but some of the some of the discussions that we were having throughout um, was about the this wealth gap issue and what the, what were how the people were going to rise up and you know while we're having these discussions you had a very in depth discussion with Mike Green um, just just kind of philosophically about this whole area and at this and at the time you know Bitcoin was happening but it wasn't mainstream right I feel like it became massively mainstream in January right that's when everybody was talking about it and of course that ends up being the peak 
But all of that stuff was already happening years prior and specifically peaking mid-2020 and 2021 when they were being locked up, young people not even not be, being able to do anything except for voting with their their uh, $1,500 monthly checks in GameStop and Robinhood and, and Bitcoin now, right? And Raul Powell, if anybody hasn't listened to that episode, he really lines up how this millennial generation and the geriatric millennials are going to be able to uh, to hopefully participate in the next evolution of this um, of, of asset growth and and the revolution in technology. So you know. So hold again, on. I just Is, felt does that, that make Philbrick a baby boomer or a geriatric Gen X? No, I'm a geriatric Gen X. You get you get both alliteration <laughs> though, right? Like you get yeah, the geri- geriatric Gen X. Yeah. See, he gets boomer, alliteration. Like I get. I don't even get alliteration. For yeah, more reasons than one, he's a geriatric uh, Gen X. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm a baby Gen X. I don't know how this works, but yeah, that's funny. Geriatric millennial. That is the worst of Couldn't both. Couldn't believe it. Yeah. Agreed. But I love I love the point you were raising earlier, Adam, about uh, narrative having to chase price, because obviously there are instances uh, when you have some of these secular moves and, and, and multi-year trends when price breaks out, narrative follows, narrative loops and feeds back into price, and it becomes this virtuous cycle and a self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent. But a lot of times... Uh, us, uh, I mean, people who are in any sort of domain of knowledge that would know better will read a piece of news and will say, okay, they got this all backwards, right? It's because mainstream media is trying to chase the story after it's already broken. And they're trying to explain why copper has been ripping or the treasuries have been selling off and they'll call a couple of traders and, and they'll try to make heads and they'll just write it. And this, this is a theme that we explore with Ben Hunt uh, who who does a lot of work in uh, natural language processing and and has been on this uh, a theme of mainstream media getting it wrong so often. Yeah, so, yeah. His his cluster analysis of uh, current media themes is that was a, a really that was a highlight of last year analytically. Um, just seeing how some of that that network analysis allows you to sort of see the the cluster of memes, how they're forming, how they're you know expanding and how they're contracting and how they change through time and how that might be used to inform um, different investment focuses and, and that sort of thing. So you know we're we're still keen to try and figure out whether there's any um, forward-looking information in that structure. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain right. there is, but you've, you've got to, you've got to account for the survival, survival bias or survival ship bias of the, of the narratives, right? Cause there's 10 narratives that are in incubation information. That's right. And when you're in the, the one that's right, you won't know, it's not going to be obvious and you're only going to be able to judge it as right. And those who predicted that particular potential future out of, hundreds of potential uh, narratives that were, you know, pondered or considered publicly or internally. So you've got a, you've got a survivorship bias there. That's quite interesting. You say it's obvious in retrospect. That's why price is so critical, right? Like price is the ultimate arbiter. Um, You, you, you kind of can't argue with it, right? You can, you can spin as many stories as you like. You can make as many cogent Mm -hmm. arguments as you like. You can have the most coherent, well-constructed fundamental theory but if it doesn't agree with empirical observation as as arbitrated by price, 
then it's it's just plain false, right? Which is why mm-hmm. you know just sort of dovetailing off of Richard's point, what what price? The reason why the the news chases price is because price is the confirmation of strangers, right? So you've got you've got people with theses. And then other strangers then confirm it by moving price to in in the direction of the of the story, or price moves and it confirms someone's thesis, and then the, they can go live with the story because people are interested because it's been confirmed by strangers, right? So it's this it's this natural interaction between price and the news and the media. The media needs price action to to validate um, or make credible their stories, right? and to give them a direction to look in. Yeah, and the narrative flow will also create different types of lengths in those in that price movement and, and price bubbles, right? So some news may not have a lot of legs and there's a pop-up in price that maybe shorter-term signals and momentum might be capturing. Other ones are driven by guys like Elon Musk that can, that can keep that thing going for months at a time. Uh, and I think what's interesting about this idea of like, where is that narrative emerging from and how is that going to affect price action? Part of the theme that we had throughout the year in the risk was also the idea of ensembles, right? Of not just having, okay, well, we've seen a certain type of uh, look back trend work in the, over the last five years, because maybe that was a dominant kind of narrative trend that, that led that price movement, but rather say be at least broadly correct rather than try and be specifically wrong and create a number of ensemble based strategies across trend momentum mean reversion and all those things we had Corey hostin come in and uh and really talk about a um the idea of, of different um timing of timing when luck. you're going to trade timing yeah. luck the reduction the time. of timing luck in your yeah. rebalancing and then yeah and, and and you bring up a great point because a lot of our quant-focused episodes, uh, Matt breaking the market, as well as Eric Crittenden and Rob Carver, all to some extent brought up the point of ensembles and like seeking explicitly seeking out different points or different ways to measure any one parameter or indicator that you're that you're trying to measure, and not relying on any single one, despite your your biases, or maybe you believe that you have that magic formula and you know how to measure wh- whether it's trend or whether it's the correlation matrix with the, your your lambda decay or whatever it is that you're using. You're always seeking out different ways to measure the volatility or what have you in order to to prevent being caught upside by relying on that one measure that could be specifically wrong, whether because it was a wrong uh, uh, piece of data that was feeding you at the wrong uh, time yeah. or, 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 or just because the, the, the data itself was incorrect or whatever. So I think this brings up actually a bigger point, um, uh, Richard, in the sense that um, when you think about a discretionary thinking versus systematic thinking, one of one of the one of the the objections or or counters we face is oh well you can't adjust quickly enough, right? Your machines don't know the programs don't know, and 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 I think someone with that's a discretionary manager with their wetware, which by the way you have no indication what they might do and how they might adjust adjust to risk, and in that wetware in a discretionary manager's head, there's no way they can contemplate the, the, contemplate the multi-dimensionality of the problem and how certain things have implications to other things in the portfolio. This is where ensembling is key 
if you're running an ensemble of various indicators, let's just be very simple and talk about trend. You are going to have short-term trend, trend indicators and long-term trend indicators. The, the, the thoughtful design of systematic thinking actually accounts for the fact that you want your system to adapt to certain circumstances at some rate. It, it's actually thought about in the implementation, whereas a discretionary manager cannot sit, state that. You are just at the randomness of their wet wetware. And there's great experience and there's great discretionary managers. I'm just saying one of the, the key concepts to being systematic about decision-making is to embrace an ensemble-like system so that you're constantly adapting and that you have uh, an ad adaptation network that moves along the full dimensionality of the problem. And of course, the problem with that is that you always have, when you're doing ensembles and you're broadly diversifying, what you do is that you're always going to have strategies and systems that are killing it. And you can see it. We see it in our dashboards. Oh, my God, that, those, that set of strategies is having a fantastic year. But you're always going to have a lot of stuff that's killing you, right? And if you take that out into the world of uh, kind of uh, discretionary management and global macro, there's always going to be big players killing it and being killed. And the ones that are killing it become the, the guardians of the narrative. Is that what we're calling it? Um, and it's really tough to compete with that, right? When you're saying, well, we didn't do that bad and we didn't do too as good as the best ones out there, but we did that because we, we are applying. We're applying this from, through a sense of humility. And humility and, and you know, market prediction just don't mix very well. I mean, systematic to the day seems to be the toughest thing to, to really sell out in the market there. Everybody likes the narrative yeah, no, and likes the big winners. That, that's such a huge, hugely important and overlooked point that can't be repeated often enough. The, the managers that try to maximize signal to noise ratio um, are the ones that are always going to be in the middle of the pack by definition, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got a trend manager who's taking a thoughtful approach to trend, an acknowledgement of the fact that you can't really know in advance which specification of trend is likely to pay off this year, um, and therefore you're using a, a wide variety of specifications, taking an average of the views of a large number of knowledgeable traders, but you don't know which trader is right at any given time, right? That's essentially what you're doing with an ensemble of trend strategies or an ensemble of any other type of strategies, right? An ensemble of seasonality, day of the week, day of the month, week of the month, week of the quarter, quarter of the year, month of the quarter. Like there's all these different ways um, that you can aggregate this information. You have no idea which one of them is going to be, you know, play the largest role in this particular performance cycle. So you just sort of, you've got to play them all. And the average is much stronger from a single to noise ratio um, and long-term performance uh, basis than any single one. But in any given year, the ensemble manager is going to underperform the best manager in the class simply because there's going to be a distribution of managers and how they specify these different phenomena. And some of them are going to be really lucky and some of them are going to be really unlucky. And the ensemble manager is going to be just above average all the time. So it's going to be hard for the ensemble manager to sort of stand out in the intermediate term. And you've got to have a really long-term history yeah. in order to really could you imagine? Could you imagine if we allowed our virtual managers to write our newsletters? Like, let the winners <laughs> write our newsletters every time? I mean, the hubris that the, these robots would have. Jeez. <laughs> Um, yeah, totally. That's a really good point. 
Yeah, I was going to say, Adam, that the the statement you were making earlier was incomplete. But then you 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 added that uh, the conclusion there, which is obviously depending on the time frame, right? So you're not going to stand out if you're looking at six months to a year because of this. Uh, you're always going to be underperforming that stellar asset class or that stellar strategy that happened to be lucky at any given point in time. This, this also brings uh, us to this idea of sizing, right? The, 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 the conversation that had this, this topic was, was visited on all three conversations with Carter, uh, Crittenden and uh, Matt Hollerback, all the, the quant conversations regarding how to size your positions appropriately. And as you develop these different tools that can allow you to overweight and underweight certain strategies and certain asset classes and, and become more nimble and more adaptive to the environment and to the signals that you're, you can then sort of de-emphasize some of the things that might be killing you for any given point in yeah. time. And Richard, that- this is this is exactly what I what I mean about the multidimensionality of the problem is beyond the human brain. Right, because you've got that ensemble of systems, the contribution that ensemble of systems makes to the portfolio, and how are you going to adjust to that? And trying to figure that out in a human brain is is difficult. You need other tools that are able to process the complexity and the relationships. Oh my God! Yeah. I mean, how, how can how can somebody even begin to consolidate the? information from just a small number of different trend, trend signals without Precisely. using some sort of system, even if it's just a simple spreadsheet. Now add in things like different types of seasonality or carry at different different points in the curve or God forbid stuff like implied vol or, or dollar gamma or- Or the two-dimensional relationship that exists skewed. between yeah. any one of these. So the different permutations that you can start doing, which is some of the avenues that our research right. has led us in the last year- Lead lag two. relationships between different different yeah. markets and yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it's just yeah I mean, Ani, would you mind sharing my screen? Um, I knew it. Our, our, our bet oh, paid off. Oh yeah, uh, I knew it. Okay, <laughs> you guys, guys had a bet. Uh, 30, awesome. Thirty-seven minutes. Who has who has <laughs> thirty-seven win? minutes? Let me go to the let me go to the pin. <laughs> who had thirty-seven minutes? I got it right here. Uh, Butler, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I I bet on Butler betting on me. We'll share the we'll share the game. We all bet on you, so you would have won that bet. That's right. Right. I don't know. I can't see <laughs> if I'm sharing my screen. Are you guys well, see I pour another glass of champagne. Can yes, you guys we see can the see it. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. so this is just kind of what we're talking about, right? These are different systematic factors on the global macro side of things. So long, short futures contracts, and the different ways that you can try and exploit um or, or or extract some some returns you got carry trend seasonality counter trend relative value which is just kind of like the i mean well, maybe maybe carry. tell rod everybody what you're looking at for those who aren't watching right you're looking yeah, at so one what, of those what we're looking at is one of these kind of uh, market quilts where you're ranking right. as uh, normally it's assets in this case we're showing strategies these are kind of our own internal indices of uh, ensemble based strategies, ensemble based factor. Yeah, each indices. one of these, each one of these uh, squares. This is from 2000 to 2020. From uh, each year, uh, ranks from best to worst. And and what you'll see for those listening is that every year it's totally random which strategy does best in between carry trend, seasonality, counter trend, relative value, and volatility. Um, so 
yeah, again, I mean, there's there's a ton of managers that want to do one thing, and uh, and even the allocators who claim that they want, for example, trend. Now, trend became a really big thing after 08 because it did a fantastic job in the previous 10 years. If you look at the market quilt, it's near the top most years. But then, of course, when it became super popular after 08, it's had the worst decade in, in that, that I've seen maybe since the 1930s, uh, when we look back at some, some of these indices. And so you can you never know when it's going to stop working, right? And, um, or and be, I remember when, when, the, when it's going to press pause. When right? it's going to press pause. We don't know pause. that it's stop, yeah. No, and when you're going to give up on it working. the most, right? And yeah, and sure. there's there's this belief that, for example, trend was it's going to be there when everything goes down. But long term trend didn't do so well in March of 2020, right? It didn't. A lot of people just like just press sell in April, and of course, what happened? When did the, when did the uh, the big trend revival start, Adam? In August, like I think I saw an index from August to January that was up 60, percent right? So people giving up on it in the wrong time. You're not going to be able to, I, we feel anyway, that you're not going to be able to stick to anything just um, uh, by doing one thing. So the idea of ensembles is what helps you kind of create a bit more stability. Um, but nobody's ever talking to you about being the best thing out there, right? You're always in the middle of the path. Anyway, I'll stop sharing. But that's- No, this was, this was a really good point uh, uh, to sort of emphasize the importance of being systematic and being deliberate and kind of having your rules set out well, when, when heads are cool and not and not pulling the trigger and acting yeah. from from the gut when bullets you, are flying and you want to be right, you have an established baseline that you cannot create in a discretionary brain. You you can't you can't establish a baseline for expectations if you can't sort of test your ideas. Yeah, and yeah. I think the the great point that I think both Brian Portnoy and Dan Egan made in some of the episodes that we had with them was not only uh, uh, like Dan Egan's episode, particularly about the market psychology and de- diving deeper into the myriad of behavioral biases and recency bias being perhaps the most pervasive and where FOMO comes in and some of the other uh, uh, behaviors or misbehaviors, let's call them, that, that we see uh, uh, across the investment landscape. But Portnoy's point was really important to highlight that it's not just retail investors. This is pervasive. And this is a behavior that happens in the institutional space. I mean, performance chasing happens across the board. There are very few institutions that are actually committed to setting out a quote unquote, Devin Swenson type of plan and just partnering up with their, uh, with their managers and saying, you know what, I have a five, 10 year plan and I'm going to stick with you that sort of thing, because of the recent uh, recency sort of li- world that we live in today, probably a function of social media and our cell phones and all that, it's become closer and closer. The immediacy of returns and the immediacy of results that we all need to, to, to see in order to be comfortable. And if we don't see it, you know, we, we cut it loose and we, we, we sell and we look for the next best thing, whatever the new FOMO market might be. That sort of behavior, which is expected in the retail uh, uh, environment, you know, at the end of the day, that, institutions are made of people and it happens and across Ted the board. Ted Sadie's, for those who haven't yeah, listened to that episode, um, kind of delineated that very clearly. And uh, he talked about his mentor and the, the late, great uh, Dave Swenson, who, who personified as close as, as a human can 
the type of institutional investor that we all think exist, right? So, I mean, if you want a framework uh, or understand a little bit of a framework to try to get closer to a disciplined, long-term, kind of long-lived asset advisor investor, then you got to listen to that Ted Sadie's podcast, read his book. Um, you know, that, that had a lot of great insights and a lot of good frameworks that you could use. I, th I think some of the, if we take a step back to the, the, the sort of base camp of why we selected uh, more quantitative and systematic decision-making comes back to Philip Tetlock, who's someone that we are pursuing vigorously to somehow get onto this podcast. But don't overpromise over my You got to put it, you got to put it into the universe in order for the universe to respond. Put it out there. You're right. And anyway, I, maybe Adam, you could, you could sort of walk through the journey there. Cause I, I know Dude, it's I love near and dear to your on, on Tetlock, man. You know that I, he's my, he's my personal hero. <laughs> I want to see you fanboy I, a little bit. And, yeah, and I will, Jesus Christ. I will also mention um, that we are extremely, fortunate to have Andy Duke on the show uh, in the coming weeks, co-hosted by Brian Portnoy. So really looking forward to that episode. Um, and obviously just dovetailing off, off some of the, the work in decision-making that Philip Tetlock pioneered. But um, yeah, just going back to, to Tetlock. So, so Tetlock's seminal work was um, uh, in a book called Expert Political Judgment. And um, for those who don't know, uh, Dr. Tetlock, after graduating with a degree in psychology, went to work in the intelligence community in Washington, and he was charged with note-taking as sort of a secretary in, in the meetings in the, in the intelligence community. And so he would be documenting the opinions and forecasts um, of the top generals and the top intelligence officials and top politicians and military officers, et cetera, and what was going on in the Russian polyboro and et cetera at the time. And, you know, they, they would get together every quarter and he would be responsible for reading out the notes from previous meetings. And it, it became clear to him really quickly that the forecasts that had been articulated in previous meetings were constantly being revised and not just being revised, it, you know, directionally, but being revised in terms of sign, right? Like somebody thought it was, something would, would expand in importance and it contracted or inflation would increase and it, and it decreased or what have you. So he quickly recognized the fallacy of forecasting in complex domains and that motivated him to go back to um, into academic life and perform this longitudinal experiment. So he recruited these, call it 200 experts, um, and, and allowed each of them to answer about 100 questions over a period of about 15 years. And we're talking about genuine experts, people with like on average of 16 years experience, average education, master's degree, senior editors, senior intelligence officials, senior military people, et cetera, senior economists, forecasting in a wide variety of, of domains. And the questions were, um, were structured in a very specific way so that um, Philip was able to document not just a person's accuracy, but their calibration. So in other words, when they said something was going to, when they said they were 60% confident that something would happen, did that thing happen about 60% of the time, right? So if that's true, they'd be perfectly well calibrated. And so uh, after about 18,000 observations, a list of conclusions, one of which was that um, nobody was able to, to demonstrate a forecasting ability better than random guesses, right? So there's not one person um, out of the 200 odd that were interviewed uh, in the study, were able to, to deliver 
forecasts better than random guesses. Um, people w that were more popular, more cited in the in the press or in research were less well calibrated than those who toiled in obscurity. Um, the average of experts was a better forecast than any individual expert. The most confident experts were less well calibrated than the less well confident experts. Um, and in general, he also ran some really simple systematic programs for forecasting alongside the experts. So for example, in the short term, the trend will persist. In the long term, the dynamic will regress to the mean. And what he found was that these systematic approaches vastly outperformed any individual expert or any group of experts and actually was able to deliver performance better than random guesses. And, and that was really formative because this extrapolation of trend in the short term was really consistent with this idea of momentum or trend following. And this idea of regression to the mean over the intermediate and long term was really consistent with this idea of value or relative value. Um, so it just mapped really directly to the quantitative finance literature and sparked an entire new adventure in the systematic quantitative realm. So right. it, it's a asking. sign of it's a it's a sign of sort of pervasiveness, if you will, because it wasn't in necessarily just markets, uh, uh, financial markets, right? This this is persistent across human decision making, right? So this in is any not complex unique. field. Correct. Yeah. Any complex adaptive, uh, weird field where there's implications and feedback loops, this is how human behavior manifests. And so it, it is, I think, a kind of a seminal point to why we've decided to move in this direction and why you will a systematic portfolio will be on potential narrative long before it manifests, when, especially when we think about our commodity exposure as an example. It was growing. It has grown. It was there and, and, and grew um, long before there was a, this constant narrative of inflation and ha how is inflation going to manifest and how is that going to manifest through asset prices to your portfolio, which are all very, very um, nebulous. They're, it's not a straightforward type of you know inflation goes up and, and thus these bonds fall and this happens. It, it happens in different ways. Go ahead, Rod. But but much like so, what's interesting about all this? We're talking about like how uh, Tetlock identified quantitative ways to be able to capture signal and whatnot. When you read his book, Super Forecasters, what he's actually doing is using quantitative tools to quantify people's understanding of news stories. And then quantifying their ability, their Breyer score, their ability to actually predict and, and, and constantly modify their predictions so that they can have, so that he can identify some people that have some sort of edge in predicting the future. Now, it's all quantitative. A lot of it is trend following and all that. But what's been enlightening this year to me is that even the systematic managers, including ourselves, were like, what? Well, something is off. Something's different. Let's understand what's different. And then when we understood what had changed or the areas of the market that are impacting price movements more than ever, we were able to then quantify and identify signals from that. For, so I'm alluding to uh, Corey's um, liquidity cascade paper and uh, Mike Green's work on you know in, uh, indices coming in and having certain flows that are consistently putting a bid on prices. When you're able to, you, you hear the global macro story, you hear a story, you dig into that story, you recognize that it's not a story, they're actually structural issues and things in the options market that made March, was it March 19th, 
that was a triple witching uh, option expiry yep. day, and that was the bottom. And so when you start looking into all these stories, they end up having a structural reason that you can quantify. And once you're able to identify and quantify that, then you can create a signal behind it, right? So it's it's all it's all driven by stories that then lead to the rules, and those rules rules can be quantified, and you can find something that has a slight edge, right? So it's kind that's of a really good point, both worlds, right? Yeah. Because, you know, a big, a big reason why um, we started having these conversations way back in the day was that we were genuinely curious, right? There were people who were being successful in the markets. They had a framework. They were looking at indicators and signals. And, and in general, they were, they were looking at them in more of a discretionary framework, right? And our objective was to sort of to listen, understand, and attempt to codify the indicators and information sources that they were using to inform their framework and then apply a more rigorous or I don't want to say more rigorous, but a rigorous data-driven empirical process to um, examine just how confident we can be that the conditions that were being captured by these indicators were reasonable at forecasting prices in what markets and over what horizon and what shape do those types of relationships take. So that's a really, really good point, right? There's a feedback loop between the more sort of deterministic causal macro framework um, that's, that was articulated by many of our macro guests. Um, like they're genuinely bringing um, to the surface novel intuitions and insights. Um, and then the, the empiricists among us can then take those insights, codify them and and begin to use them to inform our, our systematic strategy. So really, really good uh, point to emphasize. And yeah. and using a framework that lends itself to being adaptive and flexible to the different microstructures, because at the end of the day, I mean, the, the, as you were saying earlier, the, uh, the ultimate arbiter is price, but price is determined by the marginal buyer and the marginal seller. And then you start going down that rabbit hole of what are the different microstructures. And so to Mike Green's, thesis, which is so common now of the price insensitive passive flows of ETFs that are just seeking to get beta exposure, money comes in, I buy, money comes out, I sell. Those guys are buying or selling indiscriminately. I mean, with regards to price or any any sort of semblance of valuation. But you go down this rabbit hole, and especially in the multi-asset space, and you're talking about commodities and the hedgers, whether they're hedging because they're a producer and they're selling, or they're a hedger because the commodity in question is actually a price input. And so they're buying to, to, to hedge against a rise in that price. And so you go down all the lists and when you talk about currencies and exporters and importers hedging the currencies, you get a whole swath of players in the marketplace that are doing, they're acting, whether buying or selling because of reasons that go beyond what perhaps the traditional factor investment investment literature would would tell us would be reasonable and would That's be a really good point so yeah, so and, and chris sorry sorry continue. no no sorry. yeah and so you you you're, you're you're about to bring up the the uh the character of my next point which is exactly chris schindler who which who was one of the pioneers of the factor investment space or the alternative risk premium to use the institutional term here in canada and then his observation was that there was an overcrowding of the space that began in the 2014 to 2015 
uh, uh, time period, which then uh, uh, precluded a sort of factor winter that we still see in a lot of the factor-based strategies. And that has a lot to do with this idea of marginal buying and selling. And once everybody crowds into a trade, the everything's already sort of priced in when it comes to flow. Everybody's already gone towards that uh, 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 asset or strategy or style. And so the marginal uh, uh, effect, the, 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 the next step is likely to be a marginal outflow as opposed to an inflow. And so... That sort of reflexive dynamic is, I think, something that if you don't have a, a, a framework that lends itself to taking that into consideration, it can become really difficult for you to adapt once you once we observe a paradigm shift or, or, or a change in who the players are at any given point in time that are buying and selling and establishing the new price equilibrium. I think the other thing that, um, that Chris really highlighted and, you know, maybe we had been on occasion um, a little bit overly uh, critical, right, of, of investors and, and described people on the other side of factor trades as sort of willing losers, right? Um, the idea mm-hmm. being that they are um, expressing behavioral biases or other sort of non-economic incentives. Naivete, to, maybe. Yeah, making mistakes they didn't naive, know they were making. Naivete, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think Chris was... Um, helpful in 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 reframing that in a more generous light, right? Where um, I forget who said it, but that everybody gets what they want out of the market, but in a very generous way, in, could could be, but in a very generous way, you know, all of these other players in the ecosystem, whether it's forex hedgers or central banks or governments who are implementing monetary policy for in pursuit of certain fiscal objectives or monetary farmers. objectives, farmers hedging their economic risks so that they can, they can guarantee to afford to be able to replant for the next season or till the soil or rotate crops. There's Builders all these people hedging their in, timber costs and industrial yeah. producers of all stripes that are having to uh, 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 account for the rise in the cost of raw materials and how to how to whether to pass that on to their uh, with regards to their margins whether or not they've hedged. So yeah, absolutely. Those exactly. Players- so there's all these players in the ecosystem that are, you know, speculators who are speculating thoughtfully are maybe providing a service to people who genuinely have a need for certain types of risk offset, right? Mm-hmm. Of, of various kinds and for various reasons. And part of the um, profit potential for speculators is in is in time arbitrage and in the ability to, to absorb more diverse risks. Like think about a farmer, his exclusive risk is grain prices, and maybe the the cost of certain fertilizer inputs or you know some other non tangibles, whereas you know we can absorb that risk because we're offsetting those specific risks against seventy or eighty other markets in our portfolio that are responding to different seasonality patterns, different carry patterns. Maybe the carry is an expression of the cost of storage or under or over capacity in certain parts of the supply chain. That whatever it is. We are buttressing the absorption of, of one risk against the absorption of different types of risks that manifest at different times and for different reasons. And it's this diversification that allows us to absorb all of these risks 
profit off of them and then deliver a more steady sort of return stream to investors, right? Which which I think is a really important component of, of the service that we provide as financial speculators in markets. And and as, I mean, all of this also lends itself to the to what Richard was saying earlier and to the conversations we have with, with Chris Schindler, which is these players that are, require certain services, new players come online all the time with new necessities and new services, new liquidity requirements. And so what's been interesting when when you're labeled as a quantitative investor or a systematic investor or rules-driven investor is that they think oftentimes you're thought of as like an index provider right where you publish what your rules are going to be and you'd better deliver on that because if you change it it means you think something's broken or you're trying to re-optimize because your back test was wrong and we've seen a, a number like what if you're not if you're a quantitative investor trying to create alpha and you're not constantly looking for those new players that have new liquidity needs or structural needs that allow us to capture our own alpha then you're just simply going to end up either reducing your alpha to nothing to a beta to a traditional factor or um or you're just going to die off right so systematic active systematic i think has shown itself to, to to add value. I think there's we did a conversation about, or Adam, you did a presentation on the the life cycle of post factor world. The post it's on our world, YouTube channel, which I think you know got a lot of uh, hits. But it was it was this concept of you know you discover something, it has a high alpha, high expected at sharp ratio. Uh, you kind of run it for a few years, then you publish a paper. Somebody else discovers it, an academic publishes the paper. It becomes popular. Everybody piles on. You get negative alpha. Everybody leaves. And then you have this long-term expected kind of 30 sharp uh, sharp points similar to an equity risk premium return going forward. Now, if you want to live in the alpha world, you have to constantly be finding new quantitative strategies. So this idea of rules-driven you know, indexing versus quantitative managers finding new unique strategies, that is more discretionary, systematic. And it's, it's a tough thing for people to to really reconcile, right? Which I've, I've been finding more interesting, especially in 2021, as there's so many more opportunities to be able to extract. Yeah, yeah you're so right. Um, you know, everyone, there was, well, there was a time, maybe 10 years, right? Certainly during this factor craze when um, the idea of transparency was, was of prime importance, mm-hmm. right? Everybody wanted a white paper that described exactly what exactly the process that you were going to follow. And then they expected you to follow that process to the letter. And if you didn't, that was a, a firing offense, right? And I think what we've learned over over time is that, well, we, we know there's been some really great papers published just in the last two or three years about the decay that's experienced from systematic strategies post-publication. And that, that decay is absolutely monstrous. And even in a long, short context, it's very large on the order of sort of half to two thirds of the alpha goes away. And the alpha that's documented in the papers themselves are often overstated because they imply certain assumptions about, for example, borrows, the ability to borrow on shorts, the cost of borrows on shorts, transaction costs, that sort of thing that almost certainly overstate the size of these premia. But just publishing them alone notwithstanding all of the other factors, has a profound impact on the return post-publication. And that decay goes down very substantially. But 
it, that just means that if you want, it's this, for asset managers, it's this really strange place to live mm-hmm. because you need to, you, you need to publish something that allows people to have a, to, to grasp what it is that you're doing that should allow you to extract value over time in a consistent way. But then again, by publishing it, you give others the ability to copy it. And the likelihood is that that opportunity will go away over time. So there's this, there's this, um, or God forbid front run. I, I sure. think it's, 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 it's tension. It's even worse just by discovering the anomaly, the computational power that is scouring the financial markets as we speak means you have co-discovery. If you have discovered the anomaly, so have others. Publication takes it to the next level, of course. But just by discovering an anomaly that you think is unique that no one else has, you you should know that that's already been discovered. Yeah, and, right. And- so the only real alpha is continue is is is, an, is engineering a process that allows for continuous discovery of Correct. of anomalies exactly mm-hmm. and because the anomalies are going to be changing today. the yeah. anomalies are going to be changing over time based on market. whoever whoever is buying and selling at any given point in time and then some of these players die out some of these strategies fade fade out and become so unpopular that the the providers of those strategies aren't in business anymore and aren't providing the vehicles anymore. So at, at the end of the day, the, it's the idea that once it's once the, the, the anomaly has its Gutenberg moment and it's published and it's become mass available for everyone to index and commoditize, it is no longer alpha. You can call it smart beta, but it really is a beta. And for some people, it is, it, it's an alpha because, you know, they – they're unsophisticated investors. They want to buy something that's different from just a buy and hold. They want to pursue some of these factors. But at the end of the day, in order to really provide true idiosyncratic alpha, you've got to live in these places that do not have the bona fides of publication, yeah. oftentimes don't carry a behavioral intuition or an economic reason why they work. And this is sort of quoting uh, uh, some of the things that we read in The Man Who Solved the Market. Uh, about Rentech and Jim Simons and this idea of why they are so secretive in what they do. And, with and their- we've, moved, we've moved to a world, or we, I think we're kind of moving back now, but we've moved over the last decade or so to a world that, that demands full transparency. The ETF growth is, is about transparency. It's about people knowing what they're investing in. It's about market makers knowing what baskets you're, they're supposed to are about. And what we're seeing, and in, in, when we had Eric Balchunas on the podcast, and we we're talking about Arc, is the fact that everybody's front running her, right? She's she, everybody knows exactly what she's holding, you know what she, what she's thinking, what's the like next thing that they're going to buy, and everybody front runs her. She announces that she's going to do a a space ETF, and they front run her, right? So this. The extreme transparency was supposed to be or is supposed to be something that's positive for investors. I take the other side of that in many in many respects where it's it may actually be hurting investor returns ultimately when you don't allow thoughtful managers 
to keep some secrets and, and that probably that this is why the dark uh, or the I, I don't know what they call them, but the um, the new ETF structures where you can keep your trade secret for a quarter or so uh, is actually an important move back to active active that requires a little bit of secrecy active that requires a little bit of IP to be kept secret while you can and, and be able to provide those excess returns to clients again. I mean, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Right? Well, if you can, if you think of contrast that to a discretionary manager, um, what's the factor exposure of the discretionary manager? How is that stated? Where is it stated? Um, it, it's simply not stated. It is the discretionary manager who's, you know, um, it, which is evident by the, the drift in the portfolio's exposures when you look at a discretionary approach. They have far more drift in uh, just factually in their exposures. There was a time, right, when discretionary managers did have latitude to migrate from large to small, from, from mm -hmm. growth to value, et cetera. And then there was a time when consultants would penalize a manager for, for being flexible, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and exercising their expertise at their discretion. And this style drift was penalized and, and a manager was at risk of losing their allocation. Um, and I think at, to some extent that is reversing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to fault the institutions or retail investors um, for moving incrementally but steadily towards um, more index-based or, or, or factor-oriented type approaches, even if it's sort of a mix of um, hopefully multi-strategy or multi-factor type allocations. But certainly you have to acknowledge that the traditional discretionary um, mutual fund, for example, or SMA program has not been very successful at, and I mean, the interesting about mutual funds for the most part is that they do have a very explicit benchmark, right? So you're a large cap growth manager and therefore you've got a large cap oh, growth yeah. benchmark that you need to beat. Um, and they just, in general, haven't been very successful. Now, I think there are some structural reasons, and we talked about this extensively uh, internally. But again, it's so much of it's about flows and access, right? Like, um, who was it that says, I don't want to be a member of any club that would, that would have me in it? Um, um, Yogi Berra? <laughs> it no, sounds like a Yogi no, Berra. Charles Chaplin? No, we're all going to get it wrong. But it's like, anyways. But it's... Um, it's one of these weird things. Like if you can access it as a retail investor, then it's probably not worth allocating to, right? Like, because there's so many rules and guardrails um, on the product that the strategy is Groucho almost Marx. certainly commoditized. Oh, Marx, almost certainly commoditized beyond its ability to, to add value. Right. Um, right. It's why, you know, our, our products end up being in structures that, are not as readily available to um, to investors because we just we refuse a compromise on our ability to maximize profit creation, right? Like we want we are we insist on having a product that maximizes the probability of being successful rather than compromising and delivering a product that has greater accessibility at the expense of of less flexibility. Um, so I think that's a trade off that's not discussed nearly as often as it warrants um, mm. in the investment landscape. And, and I, would, I would add that benchmarking is probably the most uh, poisonous uh, concept in investment management. It's deleterious. It's, it doesn't matter 
to financial goals, to the objectives of endowments, foundations, pensions, what the S&P would do in any particular year um, is not really a relevant feature for the asset owner. And that is uh, uh, just something that the whole industry is, is centered around. And, and to me is, I mean, there, there's the, the, some of them, if you define the field of play as the largest 500 stocks in the United States, as an example, um, it's, it's going to be hard to beat that momentum portfolio for sure at, at times. And at other times, it may be easier to beat that benchmark as there's regime shifts and whatnot where there's also, actual. Go ahead. Sorry, Mike. Sorry, Mike. Yeah, no, go hit it. I was just going to say it also provides the wrong incentives, you know, perverse incentives Absolutely. for asset management companies to what they're going to launch. Right? When you have large companies defining, you know, what your benchmarks are and depending on whether you are or not, are not part of that benchmark and how well you do to that benchmark and mm. you are or not successful at raising at capital, right? So yeah. you got the perverse incentives from the individuals that are told the benchmarks matter, not their long-term wealth requirements. Yeah. And then you have the perverse incentives by uh, given to us by major players to tell us what it is a benchmark should be and, and whether you matter or not, right? Yeah, and um, we've talked about that a lot with Wes Gray, the idea that of, of how uh, providers of products are not thinking about necessarily delivering you the purest exposure to the factor. They're thinking about offering you a scalable opportunity for a factor slant. Mm-hmm. And, and so... You have to think very, very deeply or, or should consider that uh, deeply. You may want that, actually. You may have a client that has such sensitivity to the tracking error that that's all that they could take is a small slant. At the end of the day, if you're truly trying to harvest, let's say, the value factor, then you want the purest play on that factor. And thus, your portfolio, when value is out of favor, will do the worst if it's got the best exposure it's it's going to be harvesting the true character and nature. And thus, you're at the moment in time when that factor is most out of favor, you're going to be doing the worst. And that's what they're supposed to be doing. Dude, that I love that podcast. you brought that up. I absolutely love that you brought that up because yeah. that that is so misunderstood, right? People look across factor ETFs and you know factors out of favor and they're like looking at the ones who've who are close to the zero mark and they're thinking that they've outperformed the ones with the negative three sharp ratios. Right. And I'm looking at these, some of these value managers with literally a negative two and a half, three sharp ratios, like a perfect straight line down. And everyone's like pulling their hair out going just how bad these managers must be. And thinking to myself, these are the managers that have the most efficient exposure to the very characteristics that you asked them to allocate to. Right. Like you said you wanted a value strategy. You didn't say I'd like some value plus a bunch of noise. Right. Right. Can I get a little bit of value and a bunch of noise? Because that's what the guys that have the the close to zero with a bunch of noise. The the guys who are giving you genuine value exposure, a little bit of a plug for. For, for Cliff and the boys at AQR, like I'm just looking at the um, the equity line of their alt-style alt premium fund from like 2018 to like the middle of 2020. And it was like a negative two and a half sharp ratio. Like it was a straight line down. That is one majorly efficient factor strategy. It just happened that those factors were out of favor, right? And, but if you and want exposure, that's the way to get it. 
and their competitors that were like, well, this competitor did much better than the AQRs. Well, you could tell why they did that, right? Because they did compromise. They did make a, a market-oriented decision to, to keep their AUM. Oh, maybe. Guess, You're you know, more likely. It's just completely maybe unintentional. They're, just, they're like, maybe, they, they just maybe they're just construct portfolio. It's incompetence, potentially. Yes, I don't know. Potentially. Yeah. Hey, but but it, it, it we love does you come all back. out there. We're all, we're all <laughs> part of the same fight. It does come back to, uh, to the yeah. institutional uh, side being somewhat as human as the retail side when we think about Charles, El- Charles Ellis' piece, The Murder on the Orient, where they went and measured you know, um, how uh, the consultants fire managers and hire managers and the managers they fired ended up doing better than the replacement managers, in part likely because of this very fact that Adam is alluding to, is that they were actually getting really good. They had made the right decision previously, but they got to a point in pain. And this is where, you know, it's important for the consultant or advisor or whoever is helping construct the portfolio to make sure that the exposures are right in the sizing so that you can make it through the dark times. If you, in fact, give up on a strategy factor, et cetera, at the darkest moment, you get all the risk and you don't get the potential return. You crystallize the risk and you're, you're not getting the upside. So making sure that you've got the exposure right so that you can rebalance. We've done a lot of work on the rebalancing premium, the rebalancing paper. In fact, you want that deep value guy because you want to be rebalancing from your market cap portfolio to your value stocks. That dispersion and non-correlation of those factors is exactly what amplifies the long-term rates of return. But this is hard. Well, there's Calpers, a reason there's a case in point. premium, right? The right. premium is because you're rebalancing into things that are like, are continuously hurting you, right? Yes. You, you, You've got this thing that's performing well, and you've got this thing that's performing badly, and this thing that's performing badly continues to perform badly. You continue to sell the thing that's doing well and buying the thing that's hurting you. So it's like this this constant, you know, smashing in the face with a frying pan. Mm. Um, over time, that's highly beneficial, but it's painful, and that's why you earn the premium from rebalancing, right? And I, mean, I think Calpers a is a perfect has- example of this, right? Like Calpers in twenty twenty early 2020 had a tail protection. Was it Calpers? Correct me if I'm yes, wrong. Yes, Calpers. Yeah. But, you know, they had took the it tail off protection right strategy. They literally took it off like weeks before the crash, right? Alberta Investment because, Co. Because Alberta, they were, doing, Wimbledon, they were net shorting, right? Whereas Wimbledon paid off in spades because they had, they they, they kept to their their uh, portfolio. Yeah, that's their portfolio predetermined strategy. I think a lot of this has to do with a little bit a preference falsification or maybe a mis a mis a uh, 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 incorrect framing of the problem which is people aren't buying a style because of the style they're buying the style because they want something that makes them money so at the end of the day when an investor invests with you because they, they tell themselves they're investing in it with a given manager or a style because they like what you're doing and they think that your 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 process is sound or this is the style that's going to be making money into the future at the end of the day, they're buying you because they think you're going to make them money. And so a lot of this has to do from a sort of behavioral standpoint. It's a very deterministic, not to go too deep into a sort of free will Sam Harris discussion, but at the end of the day, we are all prey 
to our biases and to the deterministic nature of our uh, the way our brains are wired, right, from an evolutionary standpoint. And so we are performance chases. We do want that lottery ticket possibility. And, and, and so at the end of the day, the regulations and the benchmarking, all the, all the issues that we know that are so uh, uh, damaging to investors' behaviors, those should be constructed with that framing in mind, understanding all these biases that we are prey to, and then working around them to nudge people in the right direction. But this goes into a, a whole other discussion about regulatory capture and why the regulations are all created to incentivize certain players as opposed to others. So th this is probably not something that we're going to be seeing. Global, that's your favorite. Well, it's an Oracle problem play. too, right? Like it implies that you know the answer in advance, that if you're going to nudge people toward a certain direction, it implies you know the answer in advance. This is the, this is the challenge I have with some of these um, robo-advisors. Well, just so many of these solutions that rely on sort of behavioral finance and nudges and... Um, just all the techniques that kind of fall out of prospect theory and, and a lot of the behavioral economics work is it's one thing to want to nudge people towards productive behaviors. It's another to think that you know what the optimal behavior is, right? Because so many of these um, robo-advisor platforms that I look at, they make noises about diversification and long-term thinking mm -hmm. And then they allocate to a 60-40 portfolio that is mostly U.S. equities. And so they're sort of speaking out of two sides of their mouth, right? And, and then they, they, they nudge people away from trying to make reallocation decisions or, you know, behave in different ways. But the, pres the presupposition is that their ex the expected returns or the, you know, the capital market assumptions that underlie their U.S. heavy heavily equity centric portfolios are truly optimum uh, end up dominating in a way in, in a really subtle way right so you're nudging towards these ideologies instead of like practical realities that are likely to be more constructive for the investor but, over the long term yeah nobody's knocking on mutiny like jason buck and mutinies though none of these robots are saying hey that tail protection like I'll, and also i mean we've had jason here on the podcast discussing you know, the ensemble of tail protection, the rebalancing premium, like speaking from our, our playbook, it's a perfect thing for like, I even like kicking from the VC side, like VC guys putting it into their portfolio, robo advisors putting it into their portfolio. None of them are doing that, right? And if you really want that type of diversification, that type of massive rebalancing premium at the right time, you got to look into those areas that are becoming more accessible and yet nobody's buying or no major player is buying it. It, it, you raise a really a good point, reality. Rod, and and thank you for bringing us back somewhat on track because we did take a, 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 best, a long a long tangent. I didn't expect this to come from you. I thought Adam Me was going to help man, us help back on track. So kudos to Rod again. Yeah. Uh, no, but I, I was just going to say that we've had several guests that came on the podcast with their own sort of angle of viewing volatility and convexity and asymmetry. And so I would cite Harley Bassman the creator of the move index, which is one of my favorite episodes, but we get, we, I mean, Mike green, obviously the, the name that has been uttered here the most because his episode was so all encompassing. Uh, he mentioned he, he dabbled in so many topics, but Wayne Himmelson, his former business partner. Uh, we also had Diego Perilla who came on to talk about the bubbles an and anti bubbles uh, conversation, which was a global macro conversation, but really did 
uh, uh, encompasses this team, this theme to a, a large extent. Nancy Davis uh, with her eyeball uh, strategy. So we've had this. This has been a pervasive conversation. Obviously, after a such a large tail event in March of 2020, it was obvious that this was a topic that would be top of mind. But it hasn't just been that 20, March 2020, but rather in the last, call it three to four years, we've seen a lot. We've had Volmageddon in Feb of 2018. And since then, we've had several of these events. And so I think the conversation surrounding convexity and trading volatility and all the different ways that you can do so and minimizing the bleed through gamma scalping. So we've had several uh, episodes that I think uh, have addressed this question in, in, in many ways. And obviously the Jason Buck one where, where the ensembles, I mean, to, to toot our horn a little bit. Somebody, is, somebody needs to launch that, uh, that ensemble tail protection crypto strategy. Man, oh man, <laughs> was, that a, was that a brutal weekend? Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. Crypto, we finally got to crypto. Under, underappreciated um, episodes, which were, you know, Portnoy, we've talked a little bit about that, the institutional decision-making and um, Dan Egan with the market biases and psychologies. And, and then unrelated to investing, the Bobby Schwartz stuff was was oh extremely- God, was One of my favorites. Yeah, extremely Honestly, whoever, whoever hasn't listened to the Bobby Schwartz storytelling, yeah. prop trader out of Chicago, like true old school, prop trader become- uh, movie investor, like living yeah. in LA yeah, John McClain, yeah, John McClain, <laughs> almost, almost punching him, almost reaching across the table and punching him in a business meeting, and 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 mouthing him to go f himself, uh, and he and all he could think about it was, oh my god, John McClain is is uh, Bruce Willis, aka Bruce John Willis. McClain, is yeah, Bruce yeah. Willis, yeah, Bruce Willis. John. Sorry, I, I went straight to the character because that's where his mind was. <laughs> right. It was Bruce Willis right, yeah. ac across the table from me, and he was like, oh my god, John McClain is. To no, we gotta have we gotta have Bobby you, back for like guy a four hour marathon, guy, and, and he'd fill he would fucker. fill four hours of storytelling that guy. So yeah, yeah. Bobby Schwartz, you gotta you gotta and then, that podcast. And then and then also in the underappreciated episodes were the number of crypto episodes that we did over the summer and into the fall, um, just talking about this developing uh, technology universe that uh, with with some experts and and detailing the the potential real ramifications for the real world and the the implications that those have um and and so i think that those um those have some some shelf life and and some um value as well yeah i mean Absolutely. the greg foss um conversation i think was particularly insightful and so like what were some of the um major themes that you guys covered do you recall is that because because i know that was a really popular um episode i think actually going back to um uh what was his name matt and uh rob first um was was quite insightful and and um Foss uh, and Magdalena. Sean, yeah, yeah. Sean Cumbie and but but yeah, Foss yeah, right. and, True. yeah yeah so, so there was there were some real insights i thought that were early um on in sort of the the adoption of the narrative uh, if you will so very early in that narrative in the back in, page of the newspaper yeah cer certainly was a back page story last summer and uh, has has uh, progressively made it to the to the front page i mean i think with foss i mean although a very uh, a very absolute person in his opinions i mean his his <laughs> here we have a uh, an old school credit trader uh, talking about you know what the the, the default the, the CDS spreads are on the government of Canada as a as a 
AA credit versus you know what the uh, printing of money and debt accumulation uh, caused by COVID and the implications of that are, and that not really squaring, and that one of the ways in which an investor can hedge that potential um, risk is through assets like Bitcoin. Um, and, and how Bitcoin is maybe superior to gold or taking the mantle from gold as a potential store of value bearer asset that uh, resists the ability for uh, any central government to confiscate potentially and or print um, or create more of that said asset. Um, yeah, that's a really that good point. I think the, <laughs> Alex, I'm going to go. <laughs> I, I, I think the, um, um, the, the sort of the guests we've had in the crypto space over the last, whatever, six or eight months, um, we're really introducing the ecosystem, right? Like we were, mm-hmm. we were still uh, climbing the learning curve. We were trying to get our heads around the idea of proof of work, proof of stake, um, the difference between Bitcoin as a store of value, ether as a functional computational platform, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think going and that was really valuable. And I think that certainly the, the last year or so has been really about that, right? And I think what we're seeing going forward and we where we are seeing the real opportunity for us and for potential investors is in um, maximizing the value of that crypto ecosystem, right? I mean, from um, you have an entire financial ecosystem that is operating in parallel with the fiat ecosystem. And the fiat ecosystem has a risk-free rate of zero and the and the crypto ecosystem has a risk-free rate in the neighborhood of sort of seven to 9%, right? And and if you are thoughtful about how to harvest some of these you know, risk-free trades in a very diversified way across DeFi, across exchanges, across coins, et cetera, then, the opportunity to deliver just extraordinary risk-adjusted performance is um, beyond most people's comprehension who are who are still sort of focused in the regular securities realm and in the and in the fiat realm. And um, so, really excited to bring on. I know we're dropping a podcast in the next week or so with with a real leader in that space, and looking forward to having a lot more conversations about people who yeah. are profiting in that in that domain yeah, I mean, over the next few we, months. This kind of dovetails into our conversation about the the individuals that are willing to do certain things that may seem non-optimized or non-economic, but are actually useful to them. So in the crypto exchange, really it's about empowering individuals that can't get access to capital markets, can't get access to quick transactions in, of, of currency internationally. And what that's, created is an ecosystem of a hundred plus exchanges that are all being useful to those individual players trying to transact. But from the perspective of a quantitative manager, you're seeing massive dislocations from one exchange to the next. You're seeing, um, you know, massive dislocations in the term structure of the, uh, of the futures curve. Cause now over the last even year, we've seen a ton of derivatives been created in a lot of these exchanges that are regulated and liquid. So all of a sudden, you know, you, when you're looking for these opportunities, you start, we started up the curve with like, oh, crypto is interesting. I mean, Mike, you were in the game 10 years ago, but um, his address number is one said zero seven six five. What are you, what are your 12, what are your 12 words again? Um, pineapple, pineapple, pineapple. <laughs> 
Uh, um, and all of a sudden, you kind of go up the learning curve. And you realize, oh my God, there is a, a plethora of opportunity in this space, and we gotta we gotta hit it hard. So that that's been it's been an incredibly fun uh, learning curve. And and listen to all of the podcasts on crypto. Uh, I mean, we we kind of uh, who you're alluding to is David Fauchier from uh, from Nickel. He was interviewed by Corey Hostein a couple of months ago, and that episode dropped this week on Monday. That was fantastic. Anybody who hasn't heard it, you need to hear him. He was 100%. so good, in fact, that we interviewed him twice and put it into one podcast, and that's going to launch a week from now. So part one is Corey's uh, Flirting with Models podcast, and then part two and three is all coupled together. We, we, were, we, we were able to interview him the day of the, of the flash crash to get his thoughts on, you know, uh, David runs a multi-manager the market neutral long short series of, of uh, managers, so multi-manager portfolio, and his insights were absolutely amazing. So now we're digging deeper into the whole crypto um, yeah. ecosphere that that you, that's worth a listen. And and yeah. as we dig into it, it's it's interesting. It it it, it links back to what uh, Adam was talking about earlier in in the fact that there are uh, structural limitations from a re regulatory perspective on getting. Um, things that are new, novel, and different into portfolios. So we're contemplating, obviously, there's CME traded futures in this space, and we're uh, attempting to contemplate how we might add those to a global risk parity portfolio. How, how does that fit into uh, a set of asset classes now that it's a trillion-dollar asset class in total, or what was $2 trillion, that maybe now it's a trillion, where, wherever it, well, it, where it sits on, up? Yeah. It, it, it is a total asset class, but um, have you checked this it, hour? <laughs> I, I, are you kidding me? I'm getting all these alerts for all these fills I got. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Not advice. No fills. <laughs> um, the the uh, but but the idea and this takes time and and the regulatory labyrinth that you have to navigate in order to incorporate these things is substantial. Um, and it, it, it differs across regulatory regimes, whether that is uh, the Canadian regulators, the U.S. regulators, uh, global regulators, uh, U.K. regulators. So it's it, it is exactly what you talked about earlier. Uh, Adam is is trying to be non-compromising in trying to achieve um, uh, risk-adjusted profits on behalf of investors and also realizing the limitations of the various structures and access points that various different types of investors um, are going to face. I mean, even today we saw, I think Hong was a Hong Kong that said that retail investors are no longer allowed to invest mm -hmm. in, in crypto, which sort of reminds me of, you know, the SEC saying no to the, the Winklevoss twins with an ETF at Bitcoin 400. I, I know you guys discussed that with uh, Eric um, uh, Balkunas back when, and, you know, so yeah, the regulators are are doing their best, um, but their their career risks are they, and are they really? They're they're yeah, doing the best in the in the in the construct or framework of their careers. They're not they're not. Um, it, it's not in their nature to be innovative. It's not in their nature to think yeah, about career things. risk is very and, and the political potential yeah. for political backlash. Correct of Correct. allowing an ETF to be launched precisely. At the time where a crash comes along, right. retail investors get hurt. Yeah, no. and and who knows about the the underlying um, um, political construct that's going on between the various other regulated 
regulator, regulatory bodies, whether they be IRS, whether they be Congress. I, I, you know, we were uh, speaking to to somebody recently about you know this this is an, an it's not an SEC decision. This is a Congress decision. Please tell us it's not our job. It's, to, it's a hydra, to right? It's not one head. Yeah. There are so many different heads and, right. and, and with different objectives that have a stake with different objectives, yeah. different incentives. No, you got absolutely. the Fed. You got Congress. You got the the IRS. You have SEC. The SEC. Yeah. You have the CFTC. Right. You should and, also and give just, credit to the like. You know, there's been a lot of strum and drum about the fact that they've been so slow to approve ETFs and to make these products accessible and derivatives accessible to U.S. investors. And I mean, the fact is, if you observe the behavior of investors over the last, you know, several years, but certainly last several months, when the pressure has gotten um, largest and the cacophony of of protestations has gotten loudest. Um, obviously, them preventing U.S. retail investors from participating in some of these extremely levered derivative plays in the crypto market um, has saved them from a pretty miserable learning experience, to put it generously, um, over the last few days. Right. So, like, I think the the real lesson here is that regulations have intended consequences and unintended consequences. The intended consequence is to spare naive investors or, or inexperienced call it investors from participating in markets that they don't really understand. If you don't understand leverage and you're investing in crypto derivatives and you can get 10 to one or 20 to one leverage on your money. um, These are, like, like Buffett says, these are weapons of mass financial destruction, right? But in the right hands of experienced um, traders, the ability to run arbitrage trades and, and take advantage of sort of lending and, and more sort of risk-free, assuming that it's done properly with diversification and appropriate governance and compliance and AML and all of the things that we've all learned go into asset management. If you, if you have the experience to run a proper business like that, the ability to invest in these products opens up opportunities for actually relatively, um, you know, safe in the context of if you're investing in equity markets right now, you're taking a risk. If you're investing in cash and carry trades over a diversified set of exchanges with appropriate governance and compliance and, and oversight, then they have different risks. But I would argue that one risk is not much greater than the other, Mm -hmm. but one opportunity is demonstrably larger than the other, right? So this is, I think, the trade-off that gets missed. Yeah, and I think it comes back to the point you made earlier too, Adam, with respect to regulators are trying to do the right thing, assuming they know what the right thing is. Yeah, right. Right. Remember, you mentioned that earlier. It's like, oh, yeah, well, here we're trying to nudge behavior in this story because we we know it's right. Well, do Mm -hmm. you know that that's right? Yeah. And 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 did that help denying U.S. investors the opportunity to invest in Bitcoin at four hundred dollars? Yeah, right. No, totally. Well, it, it, it has helped over the last few weeks. But Bitcoin is back to where it was when, like, January. Are we even back to where it wasn't. Yeah. So, and so Ethereum, and Ethereum is still more than doubled, or probably yeah, to tri- give credit to this our, year. So, I think to give credit to our home country, I mean, right. Canada. Canada. So, so, so I do want like those regulators, yeah. and, and we had Sean Cumbie, 
yep. who's our ex, uh, what was head his of futures title? trading, head of futures trading, yep. who left us to start the three IQ fund. Right. And know? we have Fred Pye. The, and we, Fred Pye coming so up between yeah. him between and we will have Sean Cumbie on his his schedule is quite full and he's he's uh, he's a bit shy. Um, <laughs> but, but well, he's exclusive. Keep, keep going, Rod. Sure. And I'm going to come back. But my point stuff. is, for those who don't know what Sean's role is, this is like he 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 was the guy who yeah. wrote back to the regulators and answered every one of their questions. Every every page of questions he he got, he responded with forty pages of questions and was relentless in trying to to show the regulators how valuable this actually was to investors. And this was back in twenty seventeen when this whole thing started, right? That was like this wasn't trying to launch something at the hottest point in January twenty twenty one. This sure was wasn't. back in the day. I'm sure you know it was it was a hot topic, but not like it is today. Yeah. So this is this is a guy we interviewed. He's he's been part of our lives for a long time. He's a fantastic guy, and and he was able to to give some give some value to the regulators to give value to Canada and the world. Almost Americans can't get access to it, right? Yeah. Almost single-handedly yeah. provided the educational background and persistence to get these products approved in Canada, yeah. and they have run flawlessly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is. And the ultimate example of how, of innovation working exactly as promised. So and he hasn't um, stopped. He kudos. continues to innovate in that space. And, yeah. and we're going to continue to work when, with the Canadian when there's, when there's an opportune yeah. time, we're going to have him on because he's working on all kinds of neat stuff. Uh, we're, as I mentioned, we're going to have Fred Pion, who is the, the CEO of 3IQ as well, the one who is you know the head of that firm to get that launched yeah, in, yeah. uh, in Canada as well. So I think... Um, I think there's some really interesting insights there and, and keep in mind that what it took in Ontario was an application to the, uh, the regulators, which was denied. And then subsequently um, a set of court hearings in order to appeal to the OSC um, and, and try and get them over the um, over the hump on getting these things approved. And that, that that's a wonderful story. I can't wait to uh, have Sean on and have him talk about that because it is, no small lift. No, you're to, right. Actually, that's a get, good, that's a, just a really good story. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I think yeah. all this to say that uh, our, our viewers can expect that more crypto thematic episodes are going to be dropping both in riffs and possibly in the longer podcast. The, the uh, David uh, Fauchier episode that the guys mentioned earlier is in the podcast feed. And if anybody's looking for a, 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 coherent understanding of why this is important. I'm going to do another shameless plug and talk about our uh, podcast episode with Raul Paul. And I think that was a really, really just, just clear eyed uh, uh, explanation as to why this is so exciting for some of the OGs of global macro. I mean, the, 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 the guys that have been at this game for a long time and have been very successful and, and have totally been, switching their focus. You got and Bianco, taken you by got the, Raul Paul, you've got a number of people who were sort of global macro in, in the traditional sense who have switched their focus to this area of opportunity because of the um, uh, because of the, the the opportunity set that I think Adam and Rod you alluded to being so much more robust. 
And so, yes, okay. So, so there's some, what we'll call arbitrage trades that are risk-free, but risk-free in the investment sense, but there are other considerations, custodial certainty, how custody works, all of these types of, of questions that, that need to be addressed when um, managing assets in this field. Uh, but in, in, a fr- in a frontier set of assets like this, but that's again where excess return lives. And we've talked uh, sort of endlessly over a number of years about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. The discomfort is where the excess returns often lie. And uh, so I think that that is um, something that obviously we're, we're learning and expanding knowledge and, and uh, delving into this field and uh, going to be incorporating as we can, um, subject to all the regulatory approvals and things like that, this asset space into some of the things we do um, because yeah. of that. And I, I think, you know, as you mentioned, Richard, uh, Raul Paul is is of great insight. And, and the institutions, I mean, the early adopters are there, but those those other institutions, they're still setting up paperwork. They've gotten the board approval and working through the, the, the all of the custody issues and, and, and the the uh, purchase issues and how and what and where does it live and how do we how do we make sure that that we keep those assets those kind of unique bearer assets safe um, and they're answering those and so that wall of money as um, as Raul puts it I don't I don't think it's actually hit this market yet oh my god well it did close. it did in the last few days but it went in the <laughs> other direction. And yeah. maybe, maybe and that might have been a the, bigger wall. Yeah, that might have been back. a that might have been a purge of the excess leverage. I mean, I just want to say too, Corey, for you to chime in at, at an hour forty yeah, and chastise yeah. us. I just for, liked for him. Not I just gave you a him. shout he, out. He knows, that is knows. pretty gutsy. You're gonna feel so bad, we, buddy. We gave we gave you the full credit. Plug. Yeah, we gave and a plug. full plug on your yeah. on your podcast before we we yeah so there you go a little late to the party you're right there yeah you go. a little late um, you know what and to summarize I don't know if you guys want to call it quiz I could do this for another hour um, but it is crazy how many topics I'm only halfway through here. my champ my bottle of champagne man oh I've I'm what, almost done that, that, that's plans, see, guys. you're um, the guy who the, Butler's the guy who accelerates into it I'm done <laughs> no, I'm, I'm an early he's, I'm an early he, ramp he's about five yeah. minutes five, he's gonna start getting interesting yeah. in five minutes yeah, yeah if I got him correct five more minutes if we can get him through with me, exactly. get, get him get him through the two-thirds level of the bottle and then it gets exciting so I just find it you look through the topics because I actually didn't know how many episodes were recorded. No, I didn't see the summary of the topics until Richard did the work. It's crazy. Do any we covered, work, is that what you're trying to tell we covered it all. We're done now, right? Like, is there, what are we going to do next year? My God. It's, oh, it's amazing. Over. This is the first like, last anniversary. I, I thought we, oh, we, that's no. too good. It really is crazy how much we covered and I can't wait for what, what next year is going to look like. I mean, you think back year after year, you think, well, my God, this is, I can't believe this 2018 thing happened with, with Fed Governor Powell doing what he did. That's never happened before. You know, it's a one-time thing. And every year you just have massive stories, massive surprises, massive industries that nobody ever expected to, to be created, emergent phenomena. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful time to have a podcast, I got to say. What? I think it's an exciting time to be alive. I think, I think this, this, I, I'm marginally concerned by this cat, this sort of um, grasping or, or uh, sort of embracing is the better word of the sort of exponential change narrative that um, 
I think is we're early in that in that narrative, but I think it's a very interesting time to be alive. I think that the year, the 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 sort of parallel universe that is going on in crypto, along with the implications for the real world, along with um, the sort of ESG and in particular the environmental side of things, and the embracing of that just has so many implications that are regime changing. And it, it, I think it's going to be, um, you know, a very interesting world. I'm, I think about my kids who are 20 and 23 and, and what world are they going to be growing up in and how is it changing? I mean, it, it feels like the dawn of uh, things are going to change yet again, right? The internet yeah. changed thing in the late, in the late nineties and early knots and and now we have 20 years later, we have another very significant technological advancement that is going to change the way the world works. And there's going to be a, a digital world and there's a physical world and there's going to be the overlap of those two things. And it is um, really quite exciting. I think it's going to be a really interesting journey. I think, Rod, you always talk about this. There's been there's never been a better time to be alive. Yep. Right. It, it always, you know, the, the idea of, of that Every, and you, you, you people stop complaining about like, stop, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, stop worrying about how things can go wrong and start, start getting excited about how things can go right. Uh, thinking about things going right, Richard, I think you have to go to a party or something. Man, like what you, you, you're saying your goodbyes. Richard, we'll let you man, say goodbye. Thanks so much for all the prep and guidance on yep, today's episode. Definitely oh, enhance your experience massively. Yeah, you're muted. All right, yeah. So we're gonna call it. Oh quits. yeah, just <laughs> no. I don't want to call it quits. I have so, I have some more stuff to say. Hold on a second. That's fine. Right, I just wanted I wanted Richard down, to let's, exit. Let's 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 tripod this thing. All right, boys. Thank you. This was great. Thank you, Thanks, Richard. Richard. You were awesome, you buddy. Yep. Mike, uh, show James West your your Bitcoin shirt. Well, yeah. Well, uh, I uh, expound. Well, on I have that. one here. Hold on. So the um, what I I mean it really is what the next 10 years are going to bring. I think the ESG is going to dominate next handy. year. If I, were to, if I were to predict what's going to dominate next year, the topics and the amount of guests we're going to have, it's got to be the ESG, right? I mean, that's that's when I felt I was behind the curve on. And now it's just, I, I can't believe it even hit Bitcoin, right? I mean, I can see the parallels and whatnot, but ESG became a really dominant narrative late 2020, and then went all the way up the ladder to Bitcoin, where it's the only thing that people talk mm -hmm. about. And in the podcast that we did with uh, the two Bitcoin experts, I wasn't part of, so I can't remember their names. Um, the lady and, and the gentleman, the trader. Oh yeah, Mags and Foss. They we we did address the issue of um, clean Bitcoin, right? The mm -hmm. ESG Bitcoin, where miners are using clean energy in order to mine. Yeah. Um, we're we're looking at projects that are. <laughs> Mining clean. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Bitcoin that are, moon. That are using. Yeah, they're using clean energy in order to mine Bitcoin with energy that would otherwise be wasted or fumes that would go up in the atmosphere. So not only can you mine clean Bitcoin, but you can also get carbon credits. So possibly attaching your Bitcoin to carbon credits. Maybe that's maybe that's IP I just came up with that we shouldn't share. But um, I think that's going to dominate the themes for next year. Do you guys have any predictions of what, what's going to be dominant in the next six months? Wow. That's a good one. I don't one. know, but I don't like the visual of, of the declining heads here. Like, do I need to like, I'll get back up. That's better. If I can. <laughs> uh, predictions for next year. Good God, man. Uh, Bitcoin to the moon. 
<laughs> I do think I do think the it's interesting. I wonder if it if it is the ESG moniker or it's an actual fundamental regime change with respect to um, you know whether it's the debasement of the monetary um, uh, fiat system and so assets that are hard are more valuable combined with the potential for a reignite a reigniting of growth because it's hard to it's hard to square the ESG of batteries going through the roof where those are mining companies it, it's i'm a copper bit mining. like rare earth metals copper, yeah lithium, well, all of them lithium nickel, and argentina and nickel and, uh, copper lithium all of those all of those metals are you know they're they're difficult to mine they're they're pretty um pretty contamination con- contaminants to the environments and things like that so it, it's it's an interesting thing to square for me i'm like okay well i i, I get it i guess we're going to make a lot of batteries but there's there's unintended consequences to those mines mining those heavy metals from the earth and the tailing ponds i mean if anyone has ever seen tailing ponds and, and all of the things that i mean obviously there was what that was there was that issue recently with um is it bnp or not bnp uh bhp built in where the one of their tailing ponds the the dam broke that's a, within the last kind of two or three oh years my God, that it, happens, but, yeah that happens all the time the right and, and so you've got you know substantial environmental um consequences to thinking about that but again there uh you can think about you know abax technologies the guys who are are trying to um be able to track and source those manufacturers and miners of uh, the different commodities and being able to track back to these are the most responsible environmental producers and thus this is where you would like to buy your um, commodity metal from in order to manufacture whatever you're manufacturing so there is this pervasive sort of thought process that we should be very cognizant of the environment and maybe that's a function of the millennials um rod you as a generic millennial generic, generic geriatric, geriatric please get it right geriatric a geriatric millennial i know you guys okay. are very are very I'm taking it uh, back concerned. you're concerned about the environment unlike my baby boomer parents who didn't give a shit and uh, <laughs> and then and my then parents the still claim that you can't recycle in our hometown like i'm <laughs> <laughs> like that's demonstrably false. I see the, the recycle truck come behind the garbage truck when they come. Like that's not a thing. Oh, and my, get my, some my, my children are squealing and they're like, my parents are like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I, no. I, I think, I think the, um, yeah, the theme is going to be, I think ESG is going to be dominant. I actually think VR is going to be dominant, right? We bought VR sets for everybody in the firm because everybody was tired of doing zoom meetings for our like you know firm dinners and that kind of opened a whole new world for a lot of people right you you were playing ping pong games remotely that felt real and in fact white papers came out that showed that it actually improved your live game um I, the, the whole beeple phenomenon like this ties into crypto right the fact that people this artist that have been creating art every single day for the last 15 years making no money all of a sudden nfts come into play and there's a massive market where you have um, large auction houses auctioning off their art but the key part about vr was that a group bought two million dollars worth of its of people's art created a virtual gallery a virtual environment that with my vr headset i was finally able to visit and it wasn't like my wife's an art specialist right so i've been to many art galleries i've seen a lot of interesting ways that art has been displayed 
but Beeple's 20 pieces were placed in this virtual world that wasn't just hanging art virtually, that you can walk around these rooms, but there were also Easter eggs and surprises and interesting videos. It, it, was, a, it was a brand new world um, that I could see the next generation. It would be hard for us to, to contemplate this, but to live a lot of their lives in this virtual world and with sets this year coming in at such a cheap price, video games and environments and, and COVID uh, forcing kids to interact more virtually than ever and getting comfort in that. I think VR is also going to be huge next year. Um, as that, that's interesting. I, I, it has NFT. lots of implications too, to, um, you know, longer term, the, the change in, we had a long discussion with Jim O'Shaughnessy on the educational system and right. potential ways to improve that. And, and I think VR and online interactions with respect to, you know, educational achievements are, are very interesting. I, I don't think that's a one year thing, but, um, I think over the, the coming years, you are going to see, you know, those types of education and you're going to see, uh, um, individuals with their uh, accreditations from the perspective of <laughs> the accreditations with, <laughs> with respect. You do look like what are those guys, the, the little guys with the eyeball in the middle? Uh, the minions. He looks like a you're minion. Gonna see, oh, you're going to see this, the this geriatric millennial walking around like this in the office 50% of the time. Next year. <laughs> the, uh, what was I saying? Sorry, but um, I, I, I no, know, no, that I did, was a sorry. total derailer conversation. <laughs> I just well, love, I, I have to play the, the, on the I chain. We'll go all of your academic credentials, right? Your academic yeah. credentials will exist on an NFT chain of some kind. So when you're applying for a job, someone will, you will just provide them with your, but your let's chain hope it's not just academic, like, and I think Agreed. this is Agreed. where you're going, yes. right? It's like yeah. all of your, your body of work lives yeah. on, on chain. It is, um, irrefutably and indelibly your own body of work, right? There's mm -hmm. some sort of um, uh, verifying or, or Oracle type Oracle, yeah. process that, that verifies that it is your work. I mean, how often have we been approached over the last few years by people who want to work at Resolve in various capacities? And I've, you know, I don't know about your guidance, but my guidance is always show me what you've done. Sh like show the world what you've done. Like, what are you passionate? If you're passionate about something, it means that you cannot help yourself, but, it, but, you know, write code, talk, whatever about whatever it is that you're passionate about. So show me, where is it? Show me your body of work, right? Like we, the people that we have hired or brought onto the team over the last little while, have all been people that have just um, devoted their themselves to sharing with the world, right? Like I have a passion and I'm going to share with the world what I can do. And I think the the blockchain technology allows people to sort of combine that with tracking it through time, demonstrating that it's it's your own work, combining it with validations and credential credentialization from other institutions, right? And it's going to be the mosaic of all of these different factors that hopefully will factor into decision-making about who gets roles, positions, projects, et cetera, in the future. Because this sort of antiquated you, yeah. credentialing model is, yeah. is was increasingly it absurd. 
Do you remember you, uh, you read the book Gattaca, right? The, Dude, I watched that with, what's, with my yeah. kids like a year right. ago. Right. So what's and, crazy yeah. about that is it's a little scary that it was it, no, but you needed to have a certain credential, which was your DNA mm -hmm. fingerprint every time you go in, in order to be able to even be considered for a job. So the scary part of this is that there will be like oh, there might be massive demand for people that can that can create of the a Gattacaization of 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 this ecosystem, right? Because that was unidimensional and also entirely deterministic. It's like your genes sure. forecast your entire potential, right? And I think the ecosystem that we're sort of contemplating is you, you have a chance to show what you can do. Now, there's still going to be many, many, many people left behind, right? And that's a whole other conversation that I'm, I'd be mm -hmm. delighted to sort of get into. But because genetics does dictate a very substantial amount. And then there's this this other quality with people with very um, prospective genetics, they get short circuited by not having an environment that either triggers the genes that allow them to be, uh, to realize their potential or truncates their um, ability to demonstrate their potential for a variety of ways, right? If you can't afford to get into the right university or you don't have a computer because you live in the slums in Bangalore or whatever, right? So there's there's lots of challenges to overcome. So, so you know, I, you know I think, how I, I think see the Gattaca, the Gattaca side, well, just let me add, because the Gattaca side, I think, is one of uh, related to sort of CRISPR and designer babies. And totally. right. So, so that, 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 that edge of it, you know, we have some friends that are contemplating um, how they might have some kids and the series of choices they have in order that, that, that they can make in this circumstance is really kind of interesting, scary, Gattaca-like scary, because you can say, well, I'm going to opt out of that. I I'm going to opt out of improving my, uh, uh, my prodigy. Well, it's more like negative screening, right? It's, correct. It's you, you can't, right? yeah. yeah, it is negative screening, but it's still, it's similar. And that, that's no, no, the, that's the tip of the spear. Impact, so I don't yeah. want to undermine it yeah. for sure. It, yeah. And it, that's the tip of the spear because the next step is, well, we're going to offer these enhancements and by opting out, you are putting yourself at a competitive disadvantage or you're putting your children at a competitive disadvantage. So, so can I tell you the long-term benefit of all of that? This is where I'm excited you about can my children it. and my children's <laughs> children. Oh, well, the data. I'm talking to Mr. Butler. <laughs> I can't possibly have a positive spin on this. But let me tell you what the positive spin on this. I think I say, let's do more of that. Let's get the smartest possible people, the smartest AI, with management about how important it is to take care of, the, of all of humanity, to be able to figure out a way to create something that allows every single one of us from the people that maybe don't have an opportunity to participate in, in, in creating you know, new efficiencies in the global economy uh, to the people that can and continue to participate in that because that's their passion. They want to code, learn to code, all that nonsense. Go ahead and learn to code. If that's your passion, nonsense. do that for a living, right? Do that for a living. But if your passion is to be the best uh, a crawfish fisherman and you 
fucking love doing that. You can't do that. You have to go and be a construction worker in Mississippi in order to find an hour, half an hour to be able to do some crawfishing for yourself, right? Like I have hobbies that I cannot do because I'm trying to do things for you guys and everybody out there and my clients and my employees. I love what I do, but I'd love to do more of other stuff, right? Like that new game that I have in the VR set. So it, it will, it, if the more people we have- Is there a point coming? <laughs> I know you want to get negative on me right away. Let me finish. No, I'm just, I'm just, just I'm, I'm almost there. I'm almost, I'm now. setting it up, baby. I'm setting it up. Just give it a second. Okay, let it, okay. let it, let it just shower over Wash you. Wash over you. The, the more, the smarter people we get, the, the more we allow smart, smart people to do, to create a society in which you create an, a, um, um, uh, universal, uh, universal, uh, basic benefit, income? universal basic income of some sort that in, in, in combination with a social program that teaches you to follow your passion deeply on a daily basis so that you can be uh, fulfilled doing what you do, being social, creating communities and doing what you're most passionate about, which is what I see in the crypto space, is the moment that you actually create a, society, a utopian society where everybody's following their dreams and it's not based on following the money, but it's based on following your dreams. And we need a lot of smart people. Well, to get unless us to a following the money to, is, to is your dream. I mean, unless that's, that's what I mean. <laughs> following the money is your dream. If coding is your dream, do that. If if deep sea diving is your dream, then you get to do that. And you don't okay, have to worry about it. But there's two dimensions to the, the point that you just made, right? One is that we should all be pers pursuing a society that supports everybody maximizing their own unique potential and interests and passion, right? Which I would agree is potentially one definition of sort of a utopian um, vision, right? But the other is the way to support that vision is that we're going to engineer a bunch of super intelligent humans that are hyper productive and are able to carry on their productive backs the entire productive capacity of humanity so that the rest of us can go about our vicissitudes, right? Which I, I kind of like. The, the only thing isn't that the way it's that, always been? But no, but no, but the, the, the way the educational system works today is a factor. But also not an engineering, they, like a, the, the, the implicit in your, in your position mm -hmm. there. Right. And I like how Mike's like, I'm just going to, I'm going to poke you in the eye there just to, <laughs> for fun. But, but I, I think implicit though, is a point that we've been revisiting over and over this conversation, which is the, the presumption that we know what characteristics we should engineer for. Right. We know what, right. Yeah. Um, sure. Um, objective function will lead to or what what how we should prime the system in order to maximize the objective function right and i'm and i'm not sure that pure intelligence ensembles, baby ensembles. is the right you gotta you gotta randomize but brilliant that's artists what, that's brilliant, what natural genetics you know, does yeah, that's a genetic <laughs> it's a genetic like, algorithm the genetic <laughs> algo is to maximize diversity right and in, in order to like you know we're going to constantly play show. to our strengths, but we're yeah. also going to have a guy that insists on living at the top of the mountain. And he's the only guy, he, you know, for most generations, he ends up being the least productive, biggest drain on social resources. 
but every now and then there's a generational flood and his family is the only one to survive it. Right. So it's hard to know, especially in an, in an ergodic system, what characteristics we should engineer for in order to maximize the sustainability and happiness or fulfillment of, of humanity. I, I, I also want to come back to the game theory aspect, which is where I was going with enhancing your, your potential offspring. Right. So, so you're not going to do it. Okay. Well, you're putting them at a competitive disadvantage and parents just generally don't do that. And so you are kind of stuck. Yeah. You're kind of stuck there. We see it everywhere. So to pretend like that's not the way that we'll end up in that, in the event that this tech or when this tech becomes omnipresent. I don't know if I see my wife, for example, consistently pushes my children away from my optimization and towards just doing what you want, do some art, throw some, you want to throw uh, you know, powder in the air and make a mess. That's fine. You're learning about gravity. You know, like my wife would optimize for crazy um, free association, non-mathematic, non-coding, sure. non-optimization, just live life and, and be happy type. So, of, so how, so how you, would that if, manifest, Rod, if you guys were deciding to have kids today and you were offered the and opportunity the and you were offered the opportunity from a, from a CRISPR perspective or we from an enhancement probably perspective, compromise, what would right? you do? We'd probably compromise. We'd probably give it a bit of both. No, we're so Mike, is your question, what, what character, what character traits would you optimize we'll for? It, it's both. As a, as a it's couple. Both. One yeah. is, one is yes or no. If yes, then what? I'd probably create that, te- the 11 fingered or the 12 fingered pianist. <laughs> Remember that from Gattaca? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm kind of reminded by the the Bruce Willis movie where they all kind of live in their in their in their houses and they're in VR they're chairs all in. the time. Yeah, and the, the real world is this sort of dystopic thing, and they're all living virtual reality, and you're you're a different person in virtual reality. They had one like fat guy who was a super hot Bruce Willis movie. Is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't. Yeah, I can't remember the name. name. But little do you know, Mike, we are living in a simulation. And on that note, no, no, I got to I, I, I do not disagree <clears throat> with that. <laughs> I, I, I think that there's, as, as VR approaches and you see the VR, you're like, well, maybe I'm in a VR. Aren't we already in VR? <laughs> this is a good move for the guys that, are, that think that people are realizing that you're already in VR. Give them some VR yeah, sets. Yeah, Brilliant. Exactly. No, That's I think they want derivative to thinking. I, I think my prediction over the next year would be that the adoption of... Um, the crypto space, the applications are going to move in an exponential fashion that far exceeds the expectations currently. And that this is going to, that this is going to bleed into many normal parts of our lives in a way that is unexpected, faster than expected. And, um, and, and probably in many ways that the average person doesn't realize, right? There'll be a lot of stuff that's happening under the surface where these technologies are going to be applied and you may or may not be aware of them, but I think the, the adoption rate and the ability to scale and the ability to, to do things that are appropriate in that space is, is likely going to outpace expectations. This has nothing to do with price, by the way, nothing to do with price. Um, this has everything to do with how this technology can be applied. Um, if we just go back a year and a year before that, I, I think just the continuation of that versus people's expectations is is still going to surprise in the upside. Yeah. Um, so that would be my prediction. The, 
the medium that we are currently broadcasting over, right? So obviously a, a use case for the internet that is valuable to us personally. Um, I do hope that the, um, the killer apps for the crypto space end up being more positive for humanity than the, the killer apps that have manifested for the internet age, right? The Facebooks, the social mm -hmm. media, the social engineering, right. And all of the bots and AIs that end up, yeah. um, you know, teaching us what to think and how to think, and yeah, 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 and potentially undermining democracy and and whatever semblance of free will we might believe in. Um, so it's um, that, that's I'm for hopeful. the next. Oh my god, I want to do another hour now, but I have to go. <laughs> you just all right. Well, me. let's let's. I wrap feel it triggered. Up. Um, well, we deviated from topic, but I loved it. Yeah. What a great well, anniversary episode, guys. Yeah. Thank you much. Thank Cheers, you, everybody, for whoever's still there whoever, for uh, sticking it. around. Mom, Mom, thanks for sticking around. Yeah. I will, <laughs> thanks, I Mom. <laughs> Even, Mom's left. I want to give a uh, shout out to for Uncle the, BB. For the four or five people who are left, <laughs> please <laughs> smash like and share and uh, leave comments and um uh, please help us grow this channel and this opportunity to share these things with, with everybody and yourselves. Um, visit us at investresolve.com and all our various other podcasts and the, 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 the riffs that we've talked about today. And um, with that, yeah. thank you for year one. And thanks, thanks to all of you who stayed with us. Yeah. Yeah. Both of Good you. Night. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.